dear, I'm Douglas Kerr. Music is a lot easier to enjoy than to talk about or to define. It seems that all cultures have some kind of music, and for many people it's one of life's greatest and lasting pleasures. Others, though, are deaf to it. Shakespeare seems to have believed that people with no ear for music were not to be trusted. They were, he says, fit for treasons, stratagems and spoils. On the other hand, music has sometimes been suspected of arousing dangerous passions. Music can enhance experience, it can make words more expressive, it can activate memory and create emotion. You can enjoy it in the acoustic solitude of your earphones, but most music is a communal thing, a shared behaviour. It remains one of the most mysterious of human activities. The ancients believed the universe itself to be a musical organisation, emitting a cosmic or angelic harmony which earthly creatures were unable to hear. On a more mundane level, music can be a high cultural status symbol, but it's also the staple of popular culture, the principal commodity of an enormous global entertainment industry, and the lubricant of much of our leisured life, piped into shops and elevators, whether we like it or not. So, to talk music with me, I've invited Jacqueline Leung and Colin Tutchin. Jacqueline Leung is a prominent Hong Kong musician, a prize-winning pianist, a soloist and chamber musician, and a teacher of music. Colin Tutchin is a conductor and composer. He was for many years director of music at the University of Warwick, and he's taught clarinet, recorder, composition, conducting, chamber music, electronic music, and jazz. So thank you both for coming in. Um, Colin Touchin, let me ask the first question of you. There's plenty of sound in the world, but only some sound is music. So what's the difference between music and just noise? I would say probably the organisational level of the sound, that is how much human beings are involved in putting things together, whether they organise the sequence of timing, which we call rhythm, or the rise and fall, which we call pitch. And so those elements can be organised by human beings. But of course nature organises some sound itself in the way that the frequencies make particular sounds, so that we recognise, say, the sound of one rock hitting another, or the sound of water. There obviously are arrangements in nature. So it's a bit more advanced than just saying humanly organised sound, and maybe it's because we like to package things into recognisable chunks just like our language of words we need to make sense so we organise words into sentences and sentences into paragraphs so also we organise notes into melodies and then into pieces and movements and so on. So all sound has potentially has rhythm, all sound has pitch but what the musician does is to make significant form out of these, right? It's to do with arrangement. I think that is so. Uh, structure uh, is something that human beings are very keen on. Uh, we none of us can survive even in a rented apartment or a hotel room without moving things around to please mm. our eye because we have some idea about the arrangement and the life we live in that arrangement. So musical sound is something we arrange so we can be pleased with the noises we hear as well. Okay, so 
you've already started to feed us some of the basic vocabulary we'll be using. Rhythm, I think we all know what that is. Pitch, you talked about? Pitch, I think, was obviously just the individual rise and fall of notes. Um, Mm -hmm. We can define them as we do with letter names and sharps and flats and those things. Um, But also, there are the sliding notes in between that are less discreet. Um, I think... Also with rhythm, we do put together notes not only that repeat patterns, but also that change those patterns. We like a pulse, we like regularity, but mm. we also like to break that regular pulse. Right, right. Something similar could be said of poetry. Indeed, yeah. Okay, two more words I want you to, to help me with at this stage. Harmony and melody. Melody is the joining together of notes in one line to create a sequence that one person, for example, could sing, from the Greek word melos, I believe, where Mm -hmm. you're sustaining uh, a linear movement through time, a rise and fall of notes. There can be long and short notes, but there will be different notes that create a rising and falling sound, which we could lead to singing, which one person can do. Harmony... What what I might call a tune... Uh, we call it a simple version would be a tune if it is tuneful. That's another thing we could come okay. to later, I think. Um, but right. harmony is, if you like, the um, the vertical coincidence of different notes. That is, two notes that are the same, we call a unison, mm-hmm. um, and if three or four notes are making the same note, there's still no harmony. It's only when there are different notes arranged in the spacing we tend to call chords, but that varies from one style to another. Right. Okay, we're now e- equipped... To, to start to make some music. Um, most of us don't know how to make up music. I mean, I, I wouldn't know where to begin in creating a tune or, or eventually composing a piece. So my question to you is really a question to you as a, as a teacher, I suppose, mm-hmm. as well as a performer of music. Can you say what qualities are needed for a person to become a music maker? Well, I think uh, for children, it comes quite natural to them. Do you think it comes naturally to all children? Not to all children, but I think as a teacher, I think I would try to let the child know that there are distances between notes. It's like a staircase. So Mm -hmm. that would kind of equate to a scale in the musical term. So once they're aware of you know, the basic seven notes or eight notes, um, they can, you know, rearrange them to make a tune or a melody. So I think that is the start. But first they have to hear them, right? You you hear people using the term an ear. Yeah. She's, she has an ear for yeah. music. Just as you might hear somebody saying he, he has an eye for photography, for example. Yeah. What does it mean to say, because I don't think I've got one, so <laughs> what do you think it means? Well, I think it is a, a natural ability to um, feel the natural rhythm and the rise and falls of, of music. Yeah. To, to distinguish, is it? Um, not necessarily to distinguish, not, or not just that, but just to have a natural ability to create it, to um, have a natural sense of how long a note should be or how short to make it a phrase, mm. you know, as in like a sentence. See, the, this leads me already into the sense of the, the mystery of music mm. because it seems as if we're saying there are certain people who have a gift. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily a performing gift, mm-hmm. but at least a, a listening gift, yeah. which other people don't have in the same way. Is that right? Well, I would say that the 
advantage of the human being over animal species is that we do have a desire to make sense of every bit of information that comes to us in a way that we can, as it were, repackage it into something that pleases us. Um, there are a few examples in nature, but not so many. It tends to be a human thing that we want to make an organisation of the sound and to appreciate the beauty of that organisation. And we actually use words that are um, across the arts, for example, in terms of shape and form mm -hmm. and colour <coughs> and texture, so that we can, in some way, appreciate of each other the skills that we share or the experiences that we have. Um, for example, if you have two people watching a sunset, they see a different sunset, but they share the experience. And when we listen to musical sounds, we probably are listening to the same sort of sound, more or less, depending on how our ears work. That's another issue about the, the, the way the body's made. But mm -hmm. it, let's assume that it's the same sort of sound we hear. But the experience we have is going to be slightly different, depending on what sense we draw out of those noises. Yeah. Now, a young child hearing something musical for the first time may be drawn to want to imitate that sound. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't expose youngsters to the sounds of what we call music, maybe they won't be able to play or to create their own sounds for many years later. And there's also the terrible thing where some teachers, certainly in the old days in Britain, used to tell a class of children, you can't sing, you're not going to be in my choir. And so these people go away thinking for the rest of their life they have no ear for music. Mm. I think I've heard birds making tunes. Mm. I have, haven't I? Indeed. That, yeah. that birds can do melody. I think yes. they do melody very well. Um, but is that our human perception of yeah. shape no, being added to yeah. what happens in nature anyway? Suppose there had been no human beings and no thing called music. Mm -hmm. Would the birds still make the same patterns of sound? And what would they be described as if the word music didn't exist? And that's a fascinating idea, which I'm afraid I have no answer to, but it just amuses me to think that the birds would create these noises anyway, mm. and it is the human being's presumption that we call it a melody, and we then have drawn inspiration for that. But those inspirations, of course, have happened at many periods of musical history. Um, in the Renaissance period, there were recorder players who used bird tunes to inspire them how to play mm. and to do the trills and so on. Um, and then, obviously, Beethoven in the Pastoral Symphony used sounds from the nature and so on. Now, I, I would imagine that one important distinction here would be in the sense of what the birds think they're doing. The birds, I am guessing, don't think that they're making music. Presumably that bird song is to communicate something. It might be a mating call, it might be an indication of danger or no danger. Birds, I'm guessing, don't have an aesthetic sense, therefore they don't have music. Is that a... Would you go along with that? That's more or less my thinking too, yes. So, you know, I think it would be perhaps a little presumptuous also to suggest that maybe they sing out of joy or sadness, but maybe they have some emotional content as well in what they're expressing. Okay, now this... We, you've opened the emotion box. <laughs> Here we go. So, Jackson, you, you're a, an enjoyer of music as well as, yep. a, as, well as a performer. Mm -hmm. Um I wonder if it's possible when you're listening to a piece of music, yeah. would I be right in thinking that you're experiencing different kinds of enjoyment, that there's a, there's a kind of emotional enjoyment and an intellectual satisfaction as well? Yeah, I think it depends on what I'm listening to. So okay. obviously when I'm doing an intellectual study of, of music, maybe I'm listening to a symphony or a piano solo piece, I would approach it with a different kind of ear mm -hmm. because I would um, try to follow 
what the performer is doing, how they are playing it, how it differs from how I would feel the music, and or I would try to guess, you know, the motivic development or how what what's going to happen to the music. But I, I'd like to sorry to interrupt. But I'd like <laughs> to try and separate. Uh, yeah. uh, I asked the question in the wrong way. I think yeah. obviously when you listen to a performance, yeah. a piano performance, yeah. you're a professional. Mm. So it's like yeah. a, an actor going to the theatre. Yeah. You're checking out whether the, the expressive mm-hmm. um, equipment of the yeah. um, uh, and um, the success with which the conception is carried out. If if we could go a little bit upstream on that, mm-hmm. and you probably can't do this, but if you switch off your yeah. performer, mm-hmm. then you're just someone who likes listening to music. Yeah. Um, I think of, I, mean, I don't know very much about this, but I think of a, a composer such as Bach, for mm-hmm. example, being rather different from a composer such as Berlioz. Yeah. Okay. That that in in Bach, because there's a there's an element of, I don't really know how to put this, but there's an there's an extra formality. Yeah. Would that be right in certain kinds of music? Whereas other kinds of music, more romantic kinds of music, mm. is foregrounding the emotion. I'm sorry to put it in such a confusing way but can you pick that up either of you yeah well i guess for the romantic music it's more lyrical it's more expressive so you just listen to the sound quality or just enjoy the emotions which come out of it the the kind of song-like type um, music but i think for bach it's more of an intellectual experience because he puts different lines together um in ways which you don't usually expect. It, it's it's often said, isn't it, that, that mathematicians really enjoy a composer like Bach, and there seems to be an important connection between music and maths. There's certainly a connection between the orderliness of mm. numbers and notes, I think. Mm. Um, and again, I take the example, if, for example, we go to somebody's house for dinner um, and on the drive back home afterwards you start to turn to your partner and say, well, I didn't like that painting on the wall and those lights were terrible mm. because we actually see somebody else's idea of orderliness and we make a decision about whether or not it's what we would do in our sense of okay. order. And I think when we listen to music, we are sometimes agreeing with the orderliness that that composer has mm. chosen to present to us, and we like that sound. And I have a lo- lovely story of a, a composer in Britain who was asked many years, um, why did he compose? And he never had an answer. He said he couldn't work it out. His name is Gordon Cross, and uh, he worked uh, a lot in the area with ben- Benjamin Britain and people like that. And he said once, he did eventually come up with an answer, and he said the answer for him was that he sensed a gap. That is, in his head was an arrangement of noises and he hadn't yet heard that particular arrangement. So he had to fill the gap with his arrangement of noises so he could be satisfied. And that was a really interesting response, and it explains why a lot of composers or artists create what they do. They do somehow sense there is a gap waiting for them to fill. Yeah. Or, you know, it's often said that music expresses what words can't express. Yes. You are agreeing with this? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, All right, no... Words can't express it. It would be difficult for us to discuss this. But yeah. what, what do you mean when you say that music can do things that language can't? I mean, language can do an awful lot. Yeah. Language can do emotion, for example. Language can give you intellectual satisfaction. It can do all those things. Yeah, I What's mean... special about music? Well, personally, I've, I've read a lot and things like that, but um, rarely has it just made me suddenly cry. But I, I think in music, like... 
kind of a certain sound would just touch your heart heartstrings, which you you don't know why. It's like a some kind of virtual <coughs> plane. It's just Jacqueline's waving her hands in the air as <laughs> <so> she explains <laughs> Yeah. There's a book by Derek Cook, The Language mm. of Music. Yeah. Um, many of the ideas, I think, still hold true now, though one or two people are questioning some of his, his thesis. But essentially he was saying that within the actual building bricks of Western music in the intervals that we have in our 12-note chromatic scale, that there are sounds that essentially create in us a, a physiological response. And the f most obvious one, for example, if you listen to the prelude of Wagner's uh, Tristan and Isolde, it starts with a rising minor sixth. Okay. Now, it doesn't matter which country you're born in, apparently, if you play just this rising interval of a minor six, almost everybody will register an emotion we call sadness in whatever language we happen to have sadness. Mm -hmm. Now, there is therefore something where clearly something's going on in the comparison of frequencies between the two notes, that the difference between these two sounds creates within the body, in some way we've heard it, it's transferred into the brain, we have created for ourselves a, a real feeling that we can then put a word on. Now, that's one apparently very obvious example. There are some other examples he uses. And in different cultures, of course, the different frequencies will mean different things. Mm. Yeah. But I think there is a language in that sense of noises that create effect. In a way, of course, the same is true with our words. When we speak, we don't speak emotionlessly, or at least very rarely. We can't help but put some emphasis and mm -hmm. some extra meaning onto the words themselves. And I think that's what performers do to composers' music. They put yeah. extra meaning onto the notes by the way they phrase them, the way they delay them, the way they accent them, just as you do when you're speaking. That's really interesting. Let's we'll get on to performance in a minute, but let's stick with with listening. Yeah. <coughs> right now, because obviously there's a there's a strong connection between music and emotion. And it's very interesting that your the argument is that there are certain actual sounds or sequences that seem to excite similar emotions in in most people, but nobody actually experiences a piece of music. In the same way, if you no. go to a concert, the person sitting next to you, it, there isn't a kind of identical response. So yeah. how, you say cultural difference, but it's obviously personal difference, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. It depends <coughs> on your personal experience, how you're feeling that day, or whether that music pleases you, mm. really, or whether you like how that person played it. So... Often I go to concerts and then somebody will be just praising that person and mm. say, oh, my God, it's the best concert I've ever been to. And then maybe for me it's like, okay, yeah, I didn't do that much for me. Or sometimes I would really love it and people are like, what? Like, just didn't, you know, it didn't do the right things, wasn't the right style, you know. So, so there has to be an element of, of the unpredictable. Yeah, and then there, I guess there's an element of taste as well. Yeah, yeah. sure. When it comes to the performance of a piece of music, a pianist like Jacqueline plays a musical piece. She does something to it which is different from what any other pianist does. Mm. What is she doing that's different? Because she's got the notes, she's got the script, and we assume that she's plonking the right notes according to um, the score, okay? But she's doing something of her own. She's adding something of her own. I think that every performer, 
and particularly somebody like Jacqueline, will put uh, an identity of individuality to it, which is partly your stored-up experience, partly the, the treasure trove of sound shapes that you've got. And we also have, I think, well, uh, as I'm teaching, I, I find that there are two techniques to talk about. One is the general technique that you need to help every student develop, that is to play the clarinet in my case or to play the piano. You have to do certain things in a certain way to get the sound to work. Mm. And that's a general technique. But then there's the personal technique. Yeah. And that's, you discover for yourself, as you're playing the instrument or playing the music, you find out how to make the sound that pleases you. Mm -hmm. And it's because in your head, again, there will be this individual desire to make a particular sound, uh, maybe a colour, it may be to place a certain amount of emphasis on certain notes that's, for whatever yeah. reason, they stick out at you as you're reading the score. You want to do something with that note more than that note. Mm -hmm. And that is a personal decision, very often. I'm getting frustrated by your answer, Ed, eloquent though it is. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because you seem to be, this seems to be something that almost can't be expressed or explained. You talk about the the person adding something from their own experience, from their own emotional mm. repertoire and, and so on. Yeah. I don't get that. You can't explain it to me, well, can I, you? I can, if you oh. like. How, how long have we got? <laughs> and, uh, I, I, when I'm adjudicating uh, in many festivals, um, I, uh, the job is to assess one performance against another. Okay. So you get several performances where the notes are all right. You might get somewhere there are two or three really interesting musical interpretations, as mm -hmm. we call them. That would be because they have absorbed not only the technique of playing those notes, but they are entering to a spirit of the structure of the piece and exploring the way that the building blocks fit together. They're making some stronger than others. They're giving some more highlights or they're underplaying some other bits. Mm. And for whatever reason, those performers believe that they are giving their best performance. As an adjudicator, you're weighing up whether or not that performance meets the criteria of that piece as the composer handed it down to us okay. and the style that we accept, the tradition of playing that music in today's world. Jacqueline, you've taken part in music competitions. Yes. Right. So this involves a, a bunch of musicians playing the same, I understand, playing the same piece. Well, it depends, but, on, yeah. But, but sometimes. Yeah, yeah. When that happens, you, supposing you hear three people mm. in a row playing mm -hmm. the same yeah. piece, and maybe one of them is yourself, yeah. are you confident that you know which one was best? It depends, really. Sometimes <laughs> you really think that person is better, yeah, but yeah. I guess you go into a competition and you have prepared as best you could and you have mm -hmm. tried to understand what's on the page and what you're trying to convey in the music. So I guess it... it we, but you, you, know, you know when you've done well. Yes, I think so. You, you know when it's, it's come off for you. Yeah. The, there may be occasions where you, you finish and you think, I didn't... Yeah. That wasn't my best. Yeah. Um, I, I guess as a pianist, a lot of time it depends on uh, the piano you're playing, you know, whether it feels it's working with you mm -hmm. and whether you've made enough contrast or um, whether you were playing the notes, you know, in a flowing way as you wished okay. or whether all the pieces came together, really. Yeah. Okay, thank, thank you. I appreciate your efforts to <laughs> explain <laughs> this. I have a different kind of question now which has to do with different kinds of music. Um, we all know there's, there is, I mean, this is a, for a gross thing to say, but there's, there is Chinese music. Mm -hmm. There's lots of variety within yeah. it. There's Western music, various, but there's a difference between them, mm. right? What is it? Well, I think the textbook uh, explanation is that Chinese music is very much built on the pentatonic scale, okay. which is like a five-note 
scale, which is um, missing one of the notes of the scale. Whereas okay. the Western music has is made up of more notes. I think that's a very kind of technical <laughs> explanation okay, I, of it. I'm yeah. all right. Thank you. I'm not quite sure what this means. There are more notes in Chinese music. Yeah. Well, no, less. Sorry, fewer notes in Chinese. Yeah, music. and and that missing notes give gives that. Uh, Chinese music that special flavor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's da, How, da, 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 da. that's a pentatonic scale. So it's missing one in the middle. Uh, as opposed to. Da, 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 da. How does this come about? <laughs> well, nature creates the octave, as we call it. Okay. Um, we, I'll explain octave in a moment, but uh, a note where you double the frequency. Um, sounds very similar, but is a higher pitch, and you can go up and double the frequency. Okay. And within that octave, we divide up, and in Western music, we call it an octave eight because we have eight letter names. That is from um, starting at A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then A is the eighth, the repetition of one again. Um, and in between that, we have some semitones, and we divided things up into whole steps and smaller steps, and we have a total of 12 relatively equal chromatic semitones, as they Okay. Now, different music languages, say in the uh, in India and mm-hmm. in China and in uh, South America and so on, they have created different divisions of that essential octave, uh, the doubling of the frequency, and it's then how you use those different steps in between, whether you repeat them, whether you rise and fall, whether you go across the joins and so on. But although there are fewer discrete notes in Chinese music. I think there are a lot more slides and glissandos between those pitches, probably as a result of the limited number of options for pitch, um, uh, in terms of notating them anyway. Um, And it's whether the notation has added to the creativity or whether notation is the result of creativity. Does it actually hinder or help composers and creators? Yeah. Well, I don't think it's written in the music, because I I actually played a bit of Chinese music myself. I played the Erhu. And Sometimes you just feel like the nose, if it's a kind of a large distance, you just want to slide up to it to make it more expressive in a way. Whereas I think maybe in cello playing, you know, in the Western tradition, that is not, you know, quite allowed or you shouldn't do it as much as Chinese music. I think some players do use that portamento idea, yeah. the glissando, sliding from one note to another. Yeah. Um, yeah. And certainly in the 20s, 30s and 40s, uh, you have recordings, say, of the Bush String Quartet, yeah. where all the players are using this sliding effect yeah. for expression, yeah. so that the actual written notes are not enough information mm. yeah. for the performers to do the job they want to, and therefore they're adding something that the composer never thought yeah. of. This is very good. I, I feel I've, I've learned a lot today. We've almost run out of time. Uh, uh, there's one question I wanted to ask just before we stop, and that is has to do with music technology, basically. Now, because of developments in recording technology and so on, there is far more music in the world than there ever was. And as I was saying in the introduction, sometimes you can't get away from it. It's just everywhere. You go into a shop, it's Chinese New Year music blasting away. <laughs> Um, you c- it's difficult sometimes to switch it off. Can you very briefly give me any sense of what this might be doing to music, this kind of proliferation of stuff? There's a great danger, I think, both with music and with words and with paintings, all arts, that if we have too much of something, yeah. inevitably there's going to be a lot that isn't memorable, that isn't uh, repeatable. Um, maybe that it's not repeatable is a good thing. Um, but there are some things that we 
value very much, and it's then a, a more difficult job to suss out the really valuable pieces of music yes. from all the music that is yes. created. Yeah. And I think the job of teachers, particularly when they're working with young composers, is to assess what they're creating on those computers that really is valuable music in the compositional sense. Um, there's also, of course, a whole new field of creating music just with technological instruments and not the acoustic instruments of the past. So that's another area, and that needs another level of assessment. How that will shape the future of music really is a bit unpredictable, but quite exciting. Very good. We end then on a question mark because we have run out of time now. Jacqueline Lang, Colin Touch, and thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. And thank you for listening. <laughs>